Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 32 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. And this episode is also sponsored by Peghead Nation. And this week I was going to talk about the brand new course that they introduced with Sharon Gilchrist, but I thought it would be even cooler to have Sharon Gilchrist on and talk about it herself. So Sharon, are you there? Yeah. Hey, Dan. How are you doing? Good, good. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks so for having me back. You're welcome. Let's talk about your new course. Uh, well, this new course is called the Bluegrass Mandolin Fingerboard Method. And basically what it is, is um, me going through some patterns that are on the fingerboard that um, I find super helpful to know about. Um, and it's a, uh, we'll be getting into some closed position patterns that do happen on the fingerboard and um, these patterns work really well in one, four, five chord song progressions, which is pretty much the nuts and bolts of bluegrass and a whole lot of music in the uh, Western music. So um, this is the kind of thing where if you learn this and really understand it, it allows you to pick up melodies really quickly, melodies that you don't know and harmonize them with double stops. And it also just really provides a good foundation for starting to understand the fundamentals of music theory on the fretboard. Oh, nice. Yeah, from there you can extend out into the other uh, chords, uh, the twos, the threes, sixes, and all that good stuff. Um, but uh, I really love this, uh, teaching this. It, it, the closed position allows you to take it into all the different keys, and you're still working with the same patterns, um, but it's available up and down the fretboard, so it's easy to change keys on a break or a song and um this is stuff i so wish i had known about uh growing up and playing music and it took me a while to figure it out and um, i had been using it for a long time and then i figured out what i was doing so um, i love to give this to people right away when they're learning and for those people who maybe have already played for a while but really don't know much about theory this can be a great way to start understanding theory on your instrument that's awesome and if you're a listener of this podcast, you get a 30-day free trial by entering Mandolin Beer at checkout. So be sure to do that. And thanks, Sharon. I appreciate you checking in. Uh, thanks so much, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And also new in the mandolin world in the past week, Tristan Scroggins put out a book called Old Time Fiddle Tune Favorites. It's 15 melodies commonly played in jams written in tablature and standard notation with sources and history. I am going to put a link on mandolinsofbeer.com to where you can purchase that book, and I highly recommend you do so. Be sure to support Tristan Scroggins. He's so good. Uh, and also, thank you all for the people who signed up again this week for the Patreon. Again, I've got a Patreon page. It's patreon.mandolin or patreon.com slash mandolinsandbeer. And if you just want to support the podcast, it's 4 bucks a month. If you want to get the videos and the tablature that I put up there every week, it's 8 bucks a month. I thank you so much. I also got an email this week from somebody who asked to donate. How could they donate to the podcast if they didn't want to sign up for like a subscription-based thing? And I'm working on that. I'll figure out how to do something like that. So thank you so much for asking. But anyway, the videos this week that I posted, one was the pinky exercise that Paul Glass talked about, and one was kind of like a major-scale finger buster that I've been warming up with for the past week and a half or so, and I've noticed a huge improvement in just the clarity of notes. It's a really, really good one working on the pinky, string skipping and uh, picking. So please go and check out the Patreon page. You also go to mandolinsofbeer.com, pick yourself up a sticker, a koozie, a trucker hat, a shirt. I have four winter caps left as well. Winter's hopefully over. 
But anyway, uh, I do have a few of those left as well. So let's get into this week's episode. The songs that are featured this week, you can check out on the Spotify Mandolins of Beer playlist. Uh, be sure to follow Lauren on all her social media stuff and the Price Sisters. Next week's guest, Andy Leftwich. Cheers, everybody. Have a great And now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Lauren Price Napier. How are you doing? I'm great, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, thank you for doing it. We had a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a back and forth trying to get some times together. Both were kind of busy the last couple of weeks, so I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, well, no problem. Same, same on your end. I, I think we maybe rescheduled things for one reason or another three or four different times. So I'm glad that we were able to make connections. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, you were at the um, IBMA leadership. Uh, convention, or I don't know if convent workshop would be a better term this past week. Mm-hmm. Hey, what was that like? What do you guys go through? I know I had interviewed Casey and he talked a little bit about it, but you'd be the first person I think I've talked to in a minute that's just freshly gone through it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, Leadership Bluegrass is the name of the program, and it's basically a three day, very, very intense um, leadership seminar. Um, we we had discussion panels and, and listened to classes and presenters and did like some group work and things like that, brainstorming different different topics that um, you know, we all felt was relevant in bluegrass today in the in the greater bluegrass genre world. Um, there were twenty five or twenty six of us there as students, um, and then of course the planning committee and some IDMA staff, but uh held at the BMI uh, building in Nashville and it was it was a really, really good thing. I'm very thankful I was able to be part of it. And it's one of those things that, and, and we all talked about it in class. Um, several of us had heard from friends and, and peers and mentors that, oh, you need to go to Leadership Bluegrass. It's really a really a good thing if you're wanting to get more seriously involved in the business and, and with IBMA as an organization. And several of us had thought, okay, yeah, that's great, but what exactly is it? <laughs> and, and it, yeah, and it seemed like, you, it, it's kind of a little bit um, hard to describe because it is, it's this class that you just go and, and sit through for three days, but it's interactive and hands-on and we had all kinds of presentations, not only on how to be a leader, but, you know, state of the industry and, and what things we can do to improve, um, you know, and apply that to not only ourselves as, in, as individuals, but the, the community as a whole. Um, I was there you know, representing an artist. There were some other artists there as well, but there were also people that were um, festival and event promoters. Uh, worked with even a lady from Pandora Radio was there and as part of the class. Um, oh, cool. A guy with Diodario. So it was a really diverse um, grouping of people that had some sort of involvement in the in- industry in one way or another. Um, so I think that, that really allowed us to have a good perspective on, on several different issues. Um, and just, it was really, really inspiring. So I, I definitely recommend it to, to anybody That's awesome. that would like to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. And you performed IBMA last year? Yes, uh, we did. The Price Sisters were an official uh, World of Bluegrass Showcase band, and we were also nominated um, for Momentum Band of the Year Award. And uh, myself, I was nominated for Momentum Vocalist of the Year. So we, we had a really good good year at IBMA uh, World of Bluegrass last year. Looking forward to this year, too. So. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. 
Hey, Thank you're you. welcome. The other thing I noticed um, on your Instagram this last year is you did a European tour that seemed pretty intense as well. In de- was it December? Yes, we did. Um, it was November, something like November 18th through December 16th. It's, it ended up being exactly four weeks. And, and uh, ever, several people have asked us about it since we went. And let me tell you, it was, it was exhausting, but it was thrilling at the same time. We, we had a really, really good time. Everybody did. Um, That's great. We right. had, yeah, we had 24 shows. We, it was 28 days and we had 24 shows. Um, we only had two days off. And for the most part, that was just because it was an in-between like travel day. Um, and we had, so we had 19 shows being back to back every day in a different place. Um, it was, it was very, very busy, but it was great. We all, um, had got along with each other, which <laughs> so, very, very important. It, <laughs> yeah. And you know, it sounds silly, but we, none of us knew going into it. I mean, of course we want it to be the best that it can be, but we didn't know the other groups that we were going to be with. Um, and we had met Reiner, the promoter and his, uh, at IBMA a couple times. So we were familiar with him, of course, a little bit, but his wife, Ella, also helped um, keep things very organized. But the the artists didn't know each other um, beyond the scope of each individual group. So there were, oh, maybe 15 or 16 of us, plus Reiner and some of the crew on a charter bus, basically um, for a month (laughs) between shows going around Germany. And we all we all became really good friends, so that that was a big deal, I think, too. Um, but the the shows were great. The audiences were amazing. Um, everybody, it's like bluegrass as a whole isn't really well known over there, but where they know it, they love it. And it was it was just really really exciting and fun. I'm just thankful we were able to do it. And for the most part, none of us got sick while we were there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a little bit of colds kind of here and there. Uh, Leanna and I, my sister, got sick when we got home, but we had a week between getting back and, and Christmas, and so we kind of knocked that out during that week. So, all in all, everything was great. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, that's tough, yeah. man, all that traveling, especially, you know, if you can't, you have no, hardly any days off there. 19, 19 gigs back-to-back, that is intense. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. We, it, I think... The only thing that really kept it from getting, uh, I don't want to say monotonous, but maybe overwhelming on the one hand that, I mean, we were so busy, you know, it was, it was hard to keep up, but I think because we were so busy, it just kept everybody going and, you know, like adrenaline was high and, and moving and we were all able to, to perform still up to the end. So thankfully, no, but, that's good. yeah, I, it was good. <laughs> Did you have to do press on top of that or was it just shows? It was just shows um, for the most part. We usually, I mean, travel time between uh, venues always varied. Sometimes it would be just maybe three to four hours in between trip, or it, but there were a couple of days where it was like eight or nine by the time we got from when we got on the bus that morning to that time we got us. Um, and so whenever we would have time, Reiner and, and Illa were really, really accommodating for those of us who wanted to get to look around, we didn't, it, it's not like we got to go on a sightseeing tour by any means, but there were lots of opportunities just within the towns we were in themselves. Whenever we had a couple hours that we got to just walk around and explore a little bit. Oh, cool. Um, but otherwise it was just, it was just the shows in the evening. And, and yeah, it was good. That's awesome. So what, yeah, what, what brought you to the mandolin? 
Um, well, it's it's kind of a long story as far as like my background goes. I don't know um, how much you know how how much of a story you want there. Or not. Hey, well, um, feel free but, to uh, whatever you want to talk about. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, of course, my twin sister and I, Leanna, uh, play together nowadays, and so. And we're basically each other's best friend, which it seems like with twins, you're either that or the total opposite. Um, but thankfully, we, we've always gotten along really well. We, <laughs> we do pretty much everything together. <laughs> um, but uh, our mom and dad, we didn't grow up like in the modern bluegrass family band, uh, per se. Our mom and dad both have really good singing voices, and our dad played guitar, so they would... Uh, we and we have a big family too on both sides, mom and dad. So everybody just kind of loves music, um, whether it was Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family or Johnny Cash or John Denver. Oh, I'll twine with pine mangles and waving black hair, with the roses so red and the lilies so fair, and the myrtle so bright with the emerald dew. The leader and eyes look like That's kind of more the stuff we grew up with. Um, and then, you know, like your bluegrass standards and mixed in there every now and then, like doing it in Kentucky and Uncle Penn. would come from far away, the day stole night till the break of day when the caller hollered, do si do, you knew Uncle Penn was ready to go. But um, as far as just bluegrass specific being the genre we focused on growing up, that wasn't really the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were five or six whenever a brother Rydell came out, and our parents had gotten that Down to the Mountain concert video oh, yeah. uh, and I remember watching it when we were little and we got the sound we had the soundtrack as, as well um and personally for myself I remember hearing Mike Compton on that record and like reading the credits and everything and, and thinking I don't know who that is I don't really know what it is but I want to sound like that someday. <laughs> um <laughs> so that's kind of what was my first introduction to a mandolin at least in in the bluegrass style, even though there wasn't a lot of context for it beyond that, um, that movie and the soundtrack, but that really did a lot for Leanna and I, because we've always sang together. Um, and when we were seven or eight, we entered a local talent show and sang You Are My Sunshine, but we, of course, every, every kid knows You Are My Sunshine, but mm-hmm. we learned it primarily from that, uh, Down from Mountain soundtrack. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of, what became like our early repertoire when we started singing places around home a little bit. And um, mom and dad got us our instruments for our eighth birthday, I think it was. Um, And we started taking lessons after turning nine. Um, And so we, it was kind of what we did in places, sports for the other kids. We we went to public school, Um, but you know, so we took lessons respectively for a few years, and, and it was it was fine. Um, I don't think either of us were super interested in pursuing it like as a specific with a specific goal in mind um, until we got maybe midway through high school. Um, we started to look into going to a bl- um, 
Augusta Bluegrass Weekend. Oh, yeah. In Elkins, West Virginia. And at the time, still, we didn't really know what the big deal was about bluegrass specifically. Um, but we had been singing, you know, together, though mostly songs from that genre and and had played for a few years. So our mom and dad really wanted to, us to go. And I will say they they never pushed us to, like, keep it up, like, to practice so many hours a week or, you know, like, we're pushy with it at all. But they were also very encouraging. And, and I think once they saw that, you know, we're getting interested in that, they, the one thing that I do remember them being more adamant about was us going to Augusta. <laughs> and to be honest, Leanna and I didn't really want to go. We'd never been away from home. Um, and it's, it's a week long camp and we were 15 or 16. So, you know, it was, it was going to be quite a different experience from what we'd had before. But, um, I say all this to say kind of the selling point for me was that Mike Compton was teaching mandolin that week. And we all remembered his name from being on Down the Mountain. Um, and so I went into his class, and Leanna actually had a class with Daryl Langer. Oh, cool. Time, which, so it was, we just kind of dove right in without really knowing what we were getting into. Um, but that was, that I think from that point on, that's when we really started to get into bluegrass and, and started playing more on our own and practicing and learning new things. And, because uh, it was it was really inspiring and challenging, but but we're, I mean, today we're really thankful for that because that that kind of just got us turned on to to bluegrass um, and following it a little bit more. So that's how I got into the mandolin, um, kind of just because it was the instrument that I picked to get at the time when I was little, but stuck with it. And same with Leanna on the fiddle. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, it seems like you guys both picked perfect instruments because you both are great at them. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> and there's nothing like sibling harmony. Uh, I mean, there's a there's plenty of great um, bands out there that that aren't related that sing harmony great, but there's something sure. to be said about sibling harmony. Well, that's um, I guess in part, you know, we we had several different artists that we we listened to and, and would call favorites, but um, we've listened a lot to you know like the brother duets and and the Carter family and things like that. So that's kind of the tradition that we grew up in even, even more so than your bluegrass configuration at first. Um, but yeah, Leanna and I have just kind of always sang together, um, and, and still enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And our vocal ranges are really similar and they always have been, but hers has always been a little bit with a lower end than mine and, and mine a little bit higher. So that's kind of how we just happen into what are our, our typical, respective parts she's usually our lead singer and, and i'm usually the uh, tenor i mean we switch on some things but that's just kind of what's always seemed to work the most and, and it's funny because if i don't have her to sing with i don't 
I feel strange singing by myself and I, and I can, you know, but it's, mm-hmm. it's just, that's just what's so much in my brain <laughs> at this point, I guess. Yeah, I bet. When you took those lessons with Mike at that camp, are there some things that still stick with you from those first lessons? Um, well, yes, I, that was, I mean, of course I knew about Bill Monroe. Um, like I said, from hearing stuff like Dominican Kentucky and Kentucky Walt, but I didn't really know of his mandolin playing that much. Um, and then, of course, I knew that Mike played Monroe-style mandolin for the focus of that class. But, but like I said, I just didn't really know that style uh, or, you know, what made it so distinct. Um, I remember, and I was, I think I was 15, and I was uh, one of the only kids in the class, which they, they do have kids from time to time, but, you know, it's mostly adults. Um, and, <laughs> of course, I've I've always kind of been more of a, was more of a shy disposition myself and just, just quiet. Uh, and I was, I was nervous, of course. I mean, most people would be, but, but I was nervous. <laughs> and, uh, Mike was going around the class asking everybody to play a tremolo. And I, I had no idea <laughs> what that was. Um, and I, I do remember that, but, um, he, Mike was really encouraging from the beginning. Um, not just, you know, in a, in a very out front way, but, if I had questions, he would always answer them and and take time within the class to discuss things and, and to work on tunes. And one thing I remember that he had said, you know, we obviously worked through some tunes, most of them being Monroe tunes. Um, but his one of his goals wasn't so much that, you know, we all came out of the class learning the tunes perfectly or having learned the tunes perfectly, but that we got familiar enough with them to where we kind of more so understood how it worked. Oh yeah. Which I, which I think is really important in Monroe style because, um, a lot of people, you know, it's not as noty and in some regards doesn't sound as complicated, but that's where the right hand comes in. Um, and Mike went through a lot of those rhythm patterns and shuffle patterns with the pick. Um, and that just really, I guess it just seemed really interesting to me. Um, and I, you know, I liked the sound of it already, but, but learning, having having a look at the, some of the mechanics of it was was really, I think, valuable at the time. So that, cool. that was it was good. And I do remember that um, our mom, uh, we since we were both fifteen, we had to have a chaperone with us that week. And our mom and dad both worked full time, um, so a cousin of ours was with us that week. But our mom and dad were able to get off work on Friday, the last day of the classes, and come over and be with us. And I remember she brought zucchini bread that she had made from uh, zucchini in our garden that year um, and I shared some with the class and I remember that Mike really liked it so, <laughs> <laughs> that's <right>. <laughs> <laughs> so that was cool <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's definitely not a story that has been shared on this podcast before <laughs> that's cool but I'm, I'm really thankful he was I mean since then he's always been really uh, inspiring of course musically but, but personally too he's just been really good to to work with and be around. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. He's a heck of a guy, man. What a, what a great person. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. You touched on the, um, people think that the Monroe part, the Monroe stuff doesn't sound complicated. And then you sit down and play it. Anybody who's not tried to play a Monroe part was like, oh, that's too easy. Just sit down and learn anything. Just learn one Monroe break and then come back and mm. and, and play it exactly like Bill Monroe and then tell me how easy it is. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I can speak to that. Deceivingly tough. Well, and that's, uh, I think... Um, that, that's just it, really, because, you know, for the most part, it was melody, note choice, but when it wasn't so much, I think he used his right hand uh, to imply the melody, so I think that's where the balance comes in, but, I mean, it's, there's just, all all the time, there's just little ways that, that things aren't what you think they would have been at all, <laughs> and it takes a lot of listening to, to try to figure out, um, and I I'm glad that that that's just really kind of what's been my favorite sound ever since. But boy, I mean, it's I think it's a lot more difficult than what some people might think. I mean, of course, everybody. I mean, well, most people know and respect that style, but but I think it is misconceived at times to just be hard and thrashy, which that's in there too. But it, I think it it always had purpose, not just for the sake of wearing yourself out you know mm, right, um, right but then i mean he and he was so good at trouble too i mean that's, that's a Oops, i lost play. a little bit there just, after tremolo oh that's okay you there um, all right yeah, i got winning. you i got you yep yeah, okay no that's fine um because everybody thinks of downstrokes which that's some of my favorite stuff but he was he was so good at tremolo too um and i think no matter what he did it was always with a sense to evoke emotion and that's that's what i find the most appealing i think about it or striking yeah he's so great and just that early monroe brothers stuff too i love and it cracks me up whenever people are like you know when somebody posts a video somebody playing fast they're like oh slow it down and then i'm always like well have you listened to the monroe brothers recently i mean that that was some ripping stuff like his tremolo on long journey home on that solo Oh like, yeah, goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh my goodness, where where are they even? What planet are they on? Yeah. So it, it's fast, but it's so good. It's I mean, so it's, great. The melody is, it's yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. What um did you listen to any other types of bluegrass stuff, or was Monroe always kind of your thing? Well, uh, from that point on, it really kind of was. Um, up till then, besides just more like coming from a classic country the classic country canon um, of material. And we really, um, Leanna and I really liked Alison Krauss. Um, she was, she was a big figure that, that we, you know, pointed to as far as singing goes. Um, we, we had a lot of their recordings growing up. Um, and the Delta Curry band uh, oh, from yeah. the beginning were, were in there pretty hot and heavy. And, and when Leanna and I were 10 and 11 and 12, our dad really liked Delta Curry, but we didn't, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess, <laughs> he just had it in the in the CD player enough to where uh, we just the, the switch flipped and, and we got hooked too. So. <laughs> Yeah, 
Yeah, that guy's so great. And Ronnie, yeah. holy moly. Oh, yeah. Well, and so that's, Ronnie was another one, too, early on for me, as far as the main one goes, that that was in my in my mind. Um, and so that his, I mean, he has his own very distinct style, but, but also harkens to Monroe, I think, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was in there, too, for sure. What are some what's some advice you, t- you you do some camps and stuff like that and it's well we're talking kind of mm-hmm. about Monroe style. What are some things mm-hmm. for people who maybe haven't tried to play some Bill Monroe stuff to to give them advice? Maybe some songs you would recommend that they listen to to try to work on, and maybe some tips that that would help them through that journey. Um, I think it just takes a lot of careful listening, and that's um. That's how I grew up learning. Now, everybody learns in a different way, and I don't discount the value of, of like, reading music or anything like that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I know how to read music now. I don't still consider myself to be very fluent in it, as in I, I can't do it very quickly, but that's just because I grew up learning by ear. Um, but that being said, I don't think you can discount just setting back with the recording that you want to learn and just listening carefully and don't get ahead of yourself. Don't try to take it at full speed at first because you'll wind up missing something that you don't even know is there. And um, because Monroe was a lot cleaner of a picker than what people think. Again, I think that just comes down to how he accented things with his right hand. But um, that being said, I think listening is is key and it that that transcends all kinds of all kinds of music whatever you're trying to learn but um like i would sit of course not not record player i i had a we had a computer growing up we didn't have internet but we did have a computer <laughs> um and would put cds in there and just just play and and stop and play and, and go back and and slow it down uh you know when you can but um one of the first uh, <laughs> actually, whenever I first got, or after I had really gotten serious about Monroe's stuff, one of the first breaks that I tried to learn was um, his kickoff, I guess it is, on the first Whippoorwill. And I didn't realize at the time that they were, they ended up usually being sharp (laughs) to the standard pitch. Um, And so like his, his uh, typical riff out of G, um, well, you'd be starting on your third, third to second fret and then open on your D and G strings. Um, I was trying to play that four, three, one instead of three, two open and for the life of me, I could not figure out why in the heck he would ever do that because it was just basically <laughs> impossible. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend doing that. Oh, that's uh, funny. But I think a, a good starting point it can often be a lot of those early Monroe Brothers recordings. Um, the slow ones where he did tremolo um, are really, I think, a good base and and like um, Little Cabin on the Hill.
that's a really simple break, but there's a lot of feeling in there. And so stuff like that, I think is a really good exercise in restraint and dynamics and uh, where you, where you place your dynamics and things like that with tremolo. So I think that's a, um, those are some good, good areas to maybe start to focus on from the beginning. Awesome. Um, and it, it, there's, there's usually people point to the way that Monroe would more often than not kind of hold your pick. And, um, that's another thing that Mike tried to get me to do for years. And I was being stubborn and, <laughs> and I was holding it differently. Um, and which still to this day, people ask me, you know, how should I hold my pick? And I still think it should be what works for you and for what you're trying to achieve. But there's definitely ways that you're just hindering yourself and making it harder than you need to be. Um, but I have since transitioned to that kind of more classic uh, way of holding my pick. And I, I do have to say myself that that makes Monroe style easier, um, I think, just in the, the angle and the, the approach and the grip. So, yeah, those those little things go into play, too. But Yeah. What um can you kind of describe what your grip is? I know it's tough on a podcast to uh yeah, that's okay. Um well previously I was I was really kind of holding it similar, um similarly, but I was kind of using three fingers and like my thumb and index and middle. Oh gotcha. Um and then like basing my uh hand on my bridge, like the top edge of my bridge. Um and I wasn't necessarily like anchored, but that was kind of just like where I pivoted my wrist. And so, and there also then my mandolin was kind of angled upward more mm -hmm. than, um, than that. And so now, um, I kind of try to keep like a straight line. I don't, I don't think you should rest your hand anywhere on the mandolin. I know if you're, you know, different styles and things like that are great. Um, and if that's what you like, that's what you like. But for my style, uh, I would definitely, sorry, um, <laughs> <laughs> for Monroe style, I would definitely recommend not bracing your hand in any way, whether it's the base of your hand on the bridge or your fingers on the top of the mainline. Uh, and so currently what I do is kind of try to make, and I, I tell students this too, um, create as much as possible, create kind of a straight, cohesive line from your uh, right elbow going all the way up the strings in the neck of the mandolin. So that way you don't really have any like competing angles um, between your arm and the, and the mandolin and your pick striking the strings. Um, and so that lets you pick on the strings just, you know, pretty much directly down, not, not turned at an angle or anything. Um, and I think that helps keep your wrist loose because the wrist is where more of your power should come from, not your elbow, because again, that just makes it harder on yourself than you need it to be. Um, so then as far as my pick goes, I now, um, it's just more, uh, mostly a two finger grip, um, with my hand curled around in a loose fist shape, but mm -hmm. not tensed. Um, so I put the pick on top or what it, then end up being the side of my index finger, that top side, and then just put your thumb right down over top of it. Um, so it's very, it's very much flat on the sides of your fingers that way. Um, and tight enough to where you drop it, of course, but loose enough to where it still can kind of flex between your fingers that way. Sure. Um, and then I just kind of curl my, the remaining three fingers underneath, um, 
not again not clinching but not letting them just hang out um either so that they don't you know wrestle on top of my own. um so i don't know again if that makes much sense over audio or not but hopefully no totally <laughs> Totally. Uh, how so? How how did you go about? The, this is interesting. I think because you said you used uh-huh. to used to kind of not anchor but brace your your wrist on the bridge a little bit. How did you teach yourself mm-hmm. to stop doing that? Well, it's um, and to be honest, I still uh, I still think I'm transitioning to that because I, it's it's hardest for me to play cleanly if I have something that's quicker or several notes, you know quickly within one passage, it's harder for me to keep up kind of, um, than it used to be with this grip, but I still feel, you know, it's for the better. So I'm working on it. Um, but I honestly started trying to kind of transition it about three years ago. Oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> it definitely does feel normal now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I started first with my current grip, I would switch to that whenever I was chopping because that was easier for me to keep up with and just kind of consciously focus on. But then whenever I'd have to go take a solo or something, I would quickly in between switch back to what I was comfortable for. So that, you know, good or bad, I think for me, that let me introduce it slowly without having to just completely like throw everything else out the window um, at the time. So that I got I got comfortable chopping that way and just gradually tried to, you know, incorporate it into my solos, which is which I do now. Nice. Um, but it that was I think that was my best way to introduce it myself. Not because I knew that I mean if you try to do it all at once, you would really just have to start completely over, which, you know, you still want to keep your end goal in sight, but I didn't want to get uh discouraged with that either i guess maybe so sure. um that was that was kind of how i approached it you know yeah. taking this small specific thing that i knew i could i could change and focus on and then you know gradually kind of going towards that end but yeah, yeah that's great i think it's great for people to hear um, sometimes you got to break bad habits that you feel or maybe not necessarily bad habits is the right word but sometimes you got to change it well, up a little bit yeah. and not be afraid so yeah, it works that, out that, great for you your plan's excellent <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned a little bit ago. You mentioned the words taste and restraint, which which kind of leads us to a heart never knows because your playing on that album is phenomenal. That is, oh, thank you. Oh my gosh! Yeah, thank you. It is. It's oh, just well. great. Um, you know, your tremolo is is so good. And, um, you know, was there anything you worked on particularly to to work on your tremolo or exercises, or was it just playing along with that Monroe just eventually got you to that point? Um, I, yes, as as a whole, that's kind of just always been a thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, tremolo... Um, thankfully has always seemed like a skill that I was better at than some of some of the others <laughs> particulars within playing. And I'm I'm thankful for that. I think that, you know, it's something that people discount too as, as being just basic, but I don't think playing the melody ever gets old. I don't think playing tremolo ever gets old. And that's not to say that to not be creative. I mean, because 
which is a whole different subject in and of itself. But like with being a Monroe style player, I want to I want to play like Bill, but I want to sound like me. And you can't be viable as an artist yourself if you're just a cover band or a cover artist. So, which is a whole other can of worms. But I say that to say that um, tremolo. That being said, is one of those things that I don't discount as being simple because I think it's a really good tool to convey emotion, especially in more of the sweet spots in a song. Um, so you can you can make that uh, dynamic or not by just controlling where you what beats you accent with your pick, uh, things like that. So that's kind of what I, I think of with Tremolo. Um, and unless there's a song that I'm doing an all Tremolo solo on, you know, I'll throw that in there in parts and then sometimes jump out of that with with a really syncopated downstroke or something like that so that it's um it still remains interesting to the ear um but yeah i i've always been a fan of tremolo whether it's it's single string kind of slippery slidey between things or uh double stops i think it's very pretty uh and you know it's something that that i do a lot that's awesome so how did y'all go about picking songs for this album the a Heart Never Knows record ended up being maybe close to half and half new and old, um, maybe two thirds old, one third new, something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, we, whenever we, which I kind of mentioned earlier, it's it's a whole other can of worms. But as far as being a group that really kind of harkens to one style, you, I mean, in, in order to have your say in this art form, you you can't copy. Um, and so whenever we try to look for a cover tune, mm-hmm. it's something that either maybe comes from a little bit different style within the, the canon and we try to, you know, bring it to bluegrass or it's something that just hasn't been done for a long time or, or wasn't very well known for whatever reason or another. Um, so for that, in that regard, like a heart never knows itself was actually, um, a Bill Harrell song. And, um, we reached out before we were recording to Dudley Cannell and asked him if he had any songs he might recommend. Um, and that was one that, that he threw to us through our oh, way. Cool. Um, yeah. And, uh, same actually with Get on the main highway, he had recommended that one to us as well. So those are both songs that had been out there at one point or another, but, um, I guess didn't go very far or, you know, have been kind of forgotten about. So, that's kind of what, what we do when we're looking for songs or digging for songs that, that are already out there. Um, but then as far as the new ones go, um, our producer, Bill Warnick has of course, several songs submitted to him usually on a regular basis. Um, and so he would, he would pitch several our way and we all just kind of mutually, you know, picked out which ones we thought would be good and, and whatnot. Um, and, uh, there's, two songs on there, I believe, I don't have it in front of me, um, that were written by Bill Castle, um, songwriter here in Kentucky, and, and uh, he had given those to us. Um, one of our favorites on the project, If I Want to Be Lonely, um, is more country-sounding, I think, than than the rest of them, and it, it was a new song, but it was a new old song. Um, Sean Camp and Paul Kraft wrote that one, but uh, it was written back in the 90s, and for whatever reason strange to us I think it it must have just gotten lost because we're we're really surprised it hadn't been recorded before then we thought it was a really good song 
Um, so it, it was brand new, even though it had been sitting somewhere in, in digital cyberspace or something for a while. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, yeah. How did you? So, yeah. um, did you guys play them a lot live before you recorded them, or did you kind of go into the studio with them fresh? Um, with with actually most of the songs on that album, no, we didn't uh, get the chance to perform most of them live. Um, our first EP that was it was a little bit different of a story most uh, a lot of those we had been doing for several mm-hmm. years but um with this with this one no we because we had um we didn't have a full-time touring group at the time um and we had studio musicians on the record so Leanna and i basically had our parts worked out you know for the songs um but kind of left the arranging up to uh the, everybody in the studio when we got in there, um, you know, to a certain degree, we, we ended up having, you know, a, a lot of say in the project, which was really important to us, of sure. course, but, um, we also wanted to know what everybody else thought once we got together, um, in that regard, since they were studio guys, which were, you know, amazing musicians, we were really thankful for that. But, um, so it, it all worked out. It was, it was fun, uh, to get to record with them too that way. Yeah, it's great. I mean, the album sounds like you've been playing it for a, years before it, it it surprises me actually that you say that you know you kind of went in there that's great oh thank you that's yeah. good yeah you're <laughs> welcome do, do, you, do you have like um do you have a couple like solos on there that you're especially proud of out of the whole thing um shoot and this is where it'd be good if i had it in front of me also <laughs> <laughs> it's been a couple of years yeah, um, yeah no worries no uh i know i i really liked my kickoff to a heart never knows And it's one of those that we felt, you know, even though it's slow, that at least in my opinion, that goes to show that it doesn't always have to be fast and up in the key of B or something to be very bluegrassy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, (laughs) which no discredit to anybody that that enjoys that, I do too. But I think it it just kind of illustrated that point um, in more of the slower groove respect of things. because for me, with that kickoff, I really wanted it to be punchy. But, you know, if if you listen to it, the tempo is not very quick at all. And it's a waltz. Um, so I was I was happy with being able to come up with that kickoff. I think it was it was uh, it it was something I was I was happy with, um, you know, just kind of to make things stand out there a little bit more with the song. Um, and uh, the Lee Wedding tune was really fun, too, actually. Uh, for more reasons than one, it's, it's a tune that's actually on Monroe's Pen album. Um, but it's not one of the more well-known tunes, I guess, on that, on that record. And little side note, side story which i guess is one more reason why that one was kind of special um my husband scott napier teaches at school of bluegrass here in Hyden, where we live and um 
four days a week. He teaches mandolin and guitar and other classes. Um, but Hayden also is the hometown of the Osborne brothers. And Bobby comes up on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and gives mandolin lessons. Oh, here no at the kidding. School. Um, yeah, this is really cool. That's awesome. Um, and four or five years ago, I never thought in my life that I would get to meet Bobby Osborne, um, who I've, I've looked up to for as long as I can remember. And whenever Scott, of course, Scott had, had been around Bobby just from being a, a pro player himself for several years. But um, whenever he got this position five, six years, it'll be six years ago, I guess. Um, he really, you know, got to be pretty good friends with Bobby being around him two days a week. Um, and then a year or so later after that, I got the opportunity to, to take lessons with Bobby too um, here. And so that's, uh, been one of the you know things that I'll treasure in my life uh, for a long time is um, getting to be around Bobby as much as I have. And so then kind of fast forward when it came time to make this record. Um, and I, I've, you know, at that time I had still been around Bobby and, and known him fairly well for two or three years, but I still don't, uh, usually I'm more of a reserved kind of person and somehow I got up the nerve, if you want to call it good <laughs> or bad, um, to ask Bobby before we recorded, if he would let me use his lore on that recording. Oh, and wow. he also owns, um, Kenny Baker's black fiddle blackie. Oh, and, sweet. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, uh, so long story short, um, he ended up letting Leanna and I use those instruments on that recording of Blue Wedding Tune. So that, that'll always be really special. <laughs> oh man, that's so cool. I'm just, I'm, I'm really thankful to, to have, you know, come to this place where, where I've been around him a lot, but he's, he knows more music than anybody, almost anybody I've ever met. And he, he's, he, he never stops. It's just pretty cool. <laughs> what is something, so it's it, interesting to talk about this. Um, what is something mm -hmm. when you take a lesson from Bobby Osborne now at this point, what is something that you work on with him? Cause you're pretty accomplished. I would well, say as a player. So it's interesting to hear, I think the perspective I was just recording with Alan Bybee and the day we uh -huh. started, he was just getting done taking a lesson from Don Stiernberg <laughs> over the phone. Oh, wow. You know, or over well, Skype. Cool. Yeah. I'm like, see, it never stopped mm -hmm. learning. And so I always, I'm always curious to see what, what people are working on. Yeah. Oh, you don't stop learning at all. And yeah, exactly. um, I'm giving lessons. No, and I'm giving lessons now on a, on a more regular basis and and teaching at camps. And that's something I really want to do. But I I will never consider myself to not be a student anymore because awesome. I just I mean no matter what there's there's so much more I feel like you know I can improve on and and want to and and there's always something to learn. But um, that being said, with Bobby, um, actually anymore we usually just end up getting to sit around and, and pick together, which is cool. Very cool. But, yeah. um, but I mean, there's, he'll still pull something out of the hat and it's like, Oh my goodness, how did you do that? And <laughs> because, <laughs> and he knows so much and he was around Monroe and everything, which, which I, you know, tout as being my favorite, but so Bobby can play all that stuff, but Bobby has his own style and nobody else really, sounds the way he does and a lot of it is um is i think fiddle inspired too mm -hmm. um but he just he's not afraid to go after these these 
really complicated, strange tunes that were old, like Howdy Forrester uh, fiddle tunes and Texas fiddle tunes and things like that, and play them on the mandolin. And that's the thing for me. It's just like I, I want to learn these tunes, and even if I don't get, you know, very, very good at playing it the way he did, I, I just want to be exposed to it, you know, while I can. And he's so, I mean, he'll always pull out a tune to show you. And, and like, um, the way he can do a fiddle shuffle with his pick is like, it's not cross picking, but it, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just one of those things that, that I try to watch and, and hope, I hope that I can pick up on it a little bit, but, but he's very, very good. If he knows that you're interested in it and want to learn, no matter what your level is of playing, he'll, he'll sit down with you and, and show you. He's very patient and just very, very fun. That's awesome. So you used his lore on the recording, but what is your main mandolin? Well, um, even though there's there's about maybe five or six mandolins in this house between <laughs> two mandolin players, I, I only really consider one of them to be mine, and that's um, that's my Buckeye. Oh, mandolin. nice! Yeah, um, yeah, uh, made by Pete Hart. It was it was my first good mandolin, like really good mandolin at, at another level above, you know, just a decent mandolin that my parents were able to get me whenever I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, but this, so this mandolin was my like several birthday and Christmas presents whenever I was 16. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah. So, um, I mean, I still play it today because it's, it'll always be sentimental to me, but I also find it to be a great mandolin and, and most people do, uh, Pete's, Pete's work is, is really well respected. Um, but, uh, it, so it was made in 2011 for me, um, custom, and uh, I uh, I haven't stopped playing it since. <laughs> oh, that's so great. I love it when somebody finds a mandolin that speaks to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, and there's other mandolins that I've played that are great, and if I could have more than one, I would love to have, but it, it would be hard-pressed, I think, for me to find one that I would rather play instead of this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. What do you uh, What do you use for picking strings? Um, my pick right now is a Taurus, uh, actually, and it's it's kind of really triangle shape. Um, it's not super super heavy. Uh, before I was using this, I was I had used um, a Dunlop Altex teardrop uh, for several years on the plane. I would compare my tortoise to be close to that thickness. Down. Um, yeah, and so it it doesn't. I mean, it's not flimsy, but I don't know. I I just feel like I have more control over that thickness of it. Um, but I really like the tone of it, and I have. Um, and I uh, previously I had used a teardrop, um, just playing off the side. And I'm I'm kind of a creature of habit. I don't like changing things very yeah. much. I don't feel very comfortable with it. Um, but I got this tortoise off of a friend of mine, and I've used it since the minute I picked it up, which, which is kind of unusual for me, but, but I do really like it. And that's what I've used for the last couple of years. Um, and GHS, I had a set of these put on my mandolin one time and I just, I really like the tone of them on this, you know, specific instrument anyway. Um, the Price Sisters as a group are actually in, uh, we endorse Theodario just for my mandolin string specifically as an individual artist, I endorse GHS, um, but I started using their strings before I, I endorsed them. So there's, you know, that, that goes into play too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. yeah. Once you find something yeah. that you like, it's, it's, mm-hmm. you, that's super important. Do you, um, do you have a Monroe tune that you are still 
look that you look at like oh, I'm it's like the golden ring of mandolin tunes that you want to learn <laughs> like one that you just keep continue to work on and and just haven't found it yet mm-hmm. um well kind of i kind of go both ways with that um one of the first tunes of the music i tried to learn whatever i was really kind of getting seriously into that with the rest of yeah and um and nowadays, you know, I play it differently than I did for starting out, but it still remains probably my favorite tune just because to me it's, it's the combination of so many things about his style. And he played it differently throughout the years. So there's about five or six different ways to play that break. So, and then, <laughs> yeah, when we play that one in our shows still a lot today. And, and it is a standard, but, but I don't think for me personally it'll get old. But that being said, um, one that is very it's very difficult or at least for me it is um, like I'm not ready for this was tangent. ever since I first heard it because it's just a really cool tune to me. Um, but I was just very intimidated by it because it is difficult and I think several players would tell you that. But, I mean, for me personally, it's it's just a very difficult tune. Um, it, it took me a long time to make sense of it. Um, and I, I finally worked it out within this last year to where I feel more comfortable with it. Um, I don't play it regularly and I shouldn't practice it more just so I feel completely comfortable with it. But that was one that I just really put off <laughs> for a while, <laughs> even though I wanted to. Um, and there's there's a handful of tunes kind of in that same vein for me. Um, more of the lesser known things that Mumro didn't didn't record. So I've got two more questions left for you. Sure. If you had ten minutes a day uh-huh. to work on something or to recommend something for someone to work on, that would be just for a week to to focus on for ten minutes. What would you work on? Um, that, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, it's just a matter of really playing anything. Um, and that's, that's probably not the best answer, but <laughs> those 10 minutes are very important and they still count. I early. agree. But yeah, definitely. Um, but, uh, some good exercises that just kind of keep you in shape, even if you only have 10 minutes for me, is kind of. Uh, just running over my chord shapes, those chop chord shapes, uh, for my style particularly, but just for finger exercises in general. It's not just because it plays a lot into my style. Um, chop chord shapes are a good thing to, to run over, um, just go to just go up and down the neck and to familiarize yourself with the neck um, and figure out that you can play the same thing in the same position in the key of F up the neck that you can play in the key of C down the neck. It's, you know, the, the finger patterns are the same, um, even though you're switching keys and, and a few of the notes might be different, but, um, that's kind of a good thing to go to as far as exercises go, just to keep yourself limber and familiar with the neck because, um, and I don't consider myself to be the best at improv. Um, 
but that's a good way to to get better at something like that, coming up with something on the fly, um, is just really figuring out that you can kind of memorize the neck of the mandolin and know what note is where. Um, and that just takes doing. But that's a, that, that makes a big difference. Just the more that you know, okay, my, my E note is here or my A flat is here. Um, and that just comes with just playing it up and down um, in your in your chord shapes, your double stops. Double stops are not overrated either. Um, you know, just just keeping yourself fresh on where your notes are because you never know when you'll need them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the beautiful yeah. thing about the mandolin, man. You know what I mean? Like you can play in a yeah. different key, but if you, you know, if you know your shapes and you and you base yeah. some of your playing out of those positions, you you're never lost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, sure. I like to think anyway. <laughs> probably gets well, me more yeah, in trouble. we all do. <laughs> like, probably gets me more in, tr- yeah. in more trouble than anything when I'm in a jam or something. Like, oh, thought I knew where I was. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I I understand. I'm, I'm the same way. <laughs> uh, and then the uh, the last question, and I'm not sure if you drink beer at all, but is mandolins and beer. Mm-hmm. And do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite beer that you like to drink when you play? So I actually wondered if if you were going to ask that or not, and. But I prefer coffee and tea and water. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's great. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't drink. I, I never have, and and I just it's, it's a personal thing for me. I, yeah, I, no, I no. don't want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, coffee and tea is great too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's my thing. I'll, I'll, uh, it, it'll be hard pressed if, or I'll, I'll kind of be hard up if I don't have my coffee in the morning. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Your insight's been incredible. I love your album. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Daniel. It's been really fun. Um, I'm, I'm really thankful that you wanted to have me. It's, it's, uh, I've enjoyed it. Um, oh, well, I suppose I should say in the way of, of promoting things um, that I have a Facebook page, but the Price Sisters have a Facebook page and Instagram, and we have a website. So uh, check us out if you want to see when we're playing next or what's new that kind of thing but but thank you so much daniel it's been really fun i'm um, I'm honored that you wanted to talk with me oh man no thank you all right there you have it what a great episode sorry about a little bit of the phone problems there uh, she was saying uh, during the podcast that there's not really any great reception in the city where she lives, but I appreciate her doing it. It was an excellent conversation. Be sure to go to mandolinsofbeer.com to get all the links, get Tristan's new book, check out Sharon's new course. And next week, Andy Leftwich, monster player. Can't wait. Cheers, everybody.